You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. U.S. Marine Staff Sergeant Eric Alva's unit was among the first to cross the border into Iraq for the start of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Three hours into the ground war, near Basra, while stepping out of his vehicle, Alva triggered a landmine, throwing him 15 feet that left him with a broken left leg, severely nerve-damaged broken right arm, and a badly injured right leg that was later amputated. He was the first American wounded in the war, and the war's first Purple Heart recipient. Alva was among the first warfighters Move United served from Operation Iraqi Freedom, learning to how to ski and scuba dive. He is a member of Move United's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Leadership Committee, and he has worked across the country as an advocate for the LGBTQ plus community. So, Eric, thank you so much for joining me. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Well, thank you for having me. A long time no see. <laughs> exactly. We were both at an, an event in New York City not too long ago, at least when we are recording this. So I thought I would just, I'd like to ask my fellow veterans the question, why? Why did you sign up to serve? Well, I mean, you know, there's a couple of components to that. I signed up to serve because one, I wanted to serve my country. My father served in Vietnam, was drafted, survived the Tet Offense. My grandfather served in World War II, Korea. I wanted to follow in my family's footsteps. At the same time, I was going through a lot. I didn't want to go off to college. I was dealing with my identity where, of course, I wanted to be in the military, but part of me was wanting to get away from home because I was struggling with my identity. And I actually joining the military was part of that component too. And then just wanting to, to be on my own and figure out who I was was probably the basis of me really joining the military because, again, I didn't want to go to college, but I wanted to serve. And, and a part of that was that, of course, getting away as well. Yeah, no, and I, I find that a lot. Uh, you and I have both have that in common in terms of long family tradition of service. And, and you know, that, that just tends to be with us. It's in our blood, if you will. So I, I did the same thing. And I think for your your purpose as well as mine, the military also does allow you to figure out, you know, who you are and you learn a lot about yourself and you learn a lot about who you want to be, who you are, you know, you develop a lot of skills. I mean, the military was, was great uh, for me for trying to figure out some things on my end as well. And did you know immediately that you wanted to join the Marines or were you looking at other branches? I actually started looking at the Air Force, but then I had a lot of friends who were joining the Marine Corps and I I actually had some thought process where like if I joined the Air Force, because coming from San Antonio, Texas, the hub of the Air Force is based here. I mean, everybody who goes through boot camp were enlisted or I think some of the OCS courses are based here. But if you were, I was going to go enlisted, then then my fear was I was going to get stationed here. So I would not really <laughs> get to go away from home. But I had quite a few friends who were joining the Marine Corps. So I had I went to their graduations in San Diego, California. And instantly I came home from that and I was like, I told my Air Force recruiter, I've had a change of heart. And he's like, oh, so you're not going to join the military? I said, no, I'm going to join. I said, but I'm going to join the Marine Corps. And he was pretty negative because I think as recruiters, they can be sometimes just jerks. But he was like, I don't think you're going to make it. And <laughs> I was like, okay, because I'm only 5'1". 
I mean, in 1989, when I started my process for the military after graduation, here I am, 18 years old, 5'1", and only 90 pounds. You still look at pictures of me today when I was 10 years into the Marine Corps, coming on 12 years, even when I got injured, people said I looked like I was 16 or something. So I thought that was a little rude, of course, you know, I was like, jerk, you know, and, and, you know, because he was like, I don't think you could make it or, you know, it's going to be too hard for you. And so I think that pushed me to as a challenge, like, I'll show you. And sure enough, after I graduated boot camp, I came home in my dress blues and I walked into his office. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and, and he said, may I help you? Of course, my hair was shorter, it was high and tight. And then it took him a second. He's like, wow, you did it. And I just smiled and I walked out. Yeah, yeah there you go. I didn't even say anything. <laughs> and I was in my dress blues. And, and I no regrets, no regrets, because I was like, dude, you know, things happen for a reason. And, you know, dude, you saved me because, man, I, I get to wear one of the best uniforms there is today. So, yeah. uh, that, well, and, and you did it. You proved him wrong, right? <laughs> I, did. I, did. I, I mean, it was hard. Let me tell you, people often ask, you know, I don't do what ifs because when I got in the hospital after getting injured, you know, stepping on that landmine, I, I actually late there for a week or two or days and going, what if I never walked this way? What if I had never got off the vehicle? What if, what if it wasn't going to bring my lead back? So I don't, I hardly ever do what ifs, but if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't <laughs> going through boot camp. It was, it was pretty tough. I mean, 13 weeks, it was, it was tough. I mean, it was just, it was very hard, but I did. And I hold that title. I am a Marine. At least you didn't have to like, oh, my duty assignment. Oh, San Antonio, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, I wanted yeah. to get away from San Antonio. So. <laughs> my mom would have been like, why don't you come live with us at home? I would have been like, uh, no. <laughs> and and so during your career, what what were some of your duty stations and, and duty assignments? Obviously, before uh, you had, were shipped to Iraq. <laughs> that was interesting because my mom was very apprehensive when I came home from the recruiter's office. And I had the... so. When we sign up and we go to MAPS, the Marine recruits back in that day, I don't know if they're still, I think they're still today. I think other branches do it too now. They give the new recruits or the not the new recruits, the new enlistees, they give them t-shirts to wear what branch they're representing. Back then, no other branch did it. We The Marines, as I'll say, which I'm guilty, were narcissistic. So the Marines would put on these shirts that said United States Marine Corps. It had the bulldog chesty in the middle and we would be in the front. I think like specifically the Marine recruiters would have us be in the front. It was to show, you know, like show and tell. I came home with that shirt, the folder, and my mom's like, what did you do? I said, I joined the Marine Corps. She's like, no, you didn't. And I said, yes, I did. She's like, you better take that back. And I was like, I'm 18 years old. I can do what I want. And my mom was apprehensive. She did not want me in the military because she lived through my dad in mm -hmm. Vietnam and you know, he never came home the same day, he ended up getting divorced because of his alcoholism and, you know, just not being the same. I will say, you know, that they were divorced for 16 years, didn't talk for the majority of that time. And years later, they reconnected. They were both not married. And here we are, 2022, and my parents are remarried and back together. What? Uh, yeah. yeah. So, and they've known each other since sixth, seventh grade. So uh, it's a huge success story. My dad just last week passed 30 years sobriety on July 7th. So, um, I mean, it's a, it's a huge success story, but again, she didn't want me to be in war because of the fear of war. And I promised her, I mean, here it is, you know, 1989 and I was actually in the delayed entry program. So I wasn't slated to go off to boot camp till 1991 because I actually had epilepsy when I was little. So I actually put yes on the application and that halted everything. Plus I only weighed 90 pounds mm -hmm. because if I didn't think the air force recruiter didn't want me, the Marine Corps didn't want me either. 
they were like, you're not tall enough. And besides, let's weigh you. And they put me on the scale and I was like 89, 90 pounds. Like, you don't even weigh enough. And then it was funny because the Marines recruiters can be jerks too. And they were like, why don't you try the Air Force? I was like, you know, I said, I tried the Air Force and I don't want the Air Force. I want the Marine Corps. And um, I was pretty adamant, persistent. So they were like, well, you can't join right now because, you know, so getting the t-shirt and everything, sorry about that. That happened in the spring of 1990. So I went to college for 1989. But in the spring of 1990, that's when I finally, because I, behind my mother's back, not to confuse the whole story, I was working with the recruiters to, I was taking, like, I was drinking uh, protein shakes. I was eating like two double quarter pounder with cheese. I was lifting weights. You know, I was gaining weight and gaining muscle. So I gained 102 pounds within six months. And so they weighed me, they did all the tests, the army did the test, they paid for it for to like the EEGs, EKGs to make sure I didn't have epilepsy anymore, things like that. And then of course, everything was approved. And I enlisted in June of uh, 1990. So my mom, after when I came home with that t-shirt was like, you take that back and everything. And, and um, um, my window to go to boot camp was July, excuse me, uh, March of 1981. But it's interesting. The reason she was so apprehensive was because, again, my father, you know, had served in war and she had experienced, you know, my other grandfather as well serving in war. Both my grandfather served in World War II. So I had guaranteed her, I said, Mom, we'll probably never be engaged because this goes to answering your question in a roundabout mm -hmm. way. I said, we'll probably never, ever be engaged in war again, because I mean, we hadn't fought since Vietnam. And then you had the Cold War during the 80s, really. So then, of course, in 19, August of 1990, Saddam Hussein invades uh, Kuwait City or Kuwait. Mm -hmm. And so my recruiter wanted me to go to go early. And he and I asked, will I be able to keep the same job? Because I was working in, in like um, accounting, financial, fiscal and things like that, because I thought I wanted to be an accountant when I got out of the Marine Corps. So. He said, no, you won't be able to keep your job. You'll be, you'll go open contract. And I always heard, don't ever go open contract. And I was like, oh no, I'll wait then. And he's like, okay. So I, the war came and gone. And again, when I went off to boot camp, I, in 1991, March of March 4th of 1991, I, when I said goodbye, I told my mom, I said, don't worry, we'll never be engaged in any other thing. And I'll be fine. You know, I'll do my time and get money for college and, you know, probably do some college in the military and come home. And sure enough, did I meet my own words, because in the fall of 1992, which will be 30 years this November or December, yeah. wow. uh, I was uh, I was sent to Somalia. I was sent to the Somalia in December of 1992. And for the start of Operation Restore Hope, most people familiarize that or think of Somalia um, about with Black Hawk Down. So mm -hmm. I was in Somalia at the beginning of it because they always send in well, they sent in the Navy SEALs first. That's when they arrived on the beach and CNN and everybody was there to greet them. And it's like, okay, so much for, you know, covert operation. We're here, you know? And I remember that as I was, you know, in the military. And uh, um, I think two weeks after that, I was put on a plane and sent to Somalia. Nasty country, ugly country, unfortunate for all the people who live there and have to go through what the warlords or the gang factions are fighting. But um, I stayed there until 93, and that was my first big duty station. I mean, uh, deployment, but I was stationed in California with 1st Marine Division. I was mm -hmm. actually sent, even though my job was an office administrative job, we actually say POG, like person other than grunt, P-O-G. I was a POG, but I got sent to, to the infantry. And then, of course, being sent to Somalia, coming home. Then after almost four years in 29 Palms, California, I put in a AA form, a Ministry of Action form to head to Okinawa because I wanted to go overseas. 
Sure enough, I get into combat engineer battalion, another infantry unit. From there, I get into combat assault battalion. I get transferred while I'm there for one year. From there, I get sent to San Francisco, California, Oakland Bay Area for INI duty, which is independent instructor staff, which is active duty people working in reserve units. So when going through to the air wing for San Francisco, which I thought I was in heaven because I was like, oh, I've never been to San Francisco. And and so I would take the ferry over onto the because I was stationed in Alameda, which is was on Alameda Island. Mm. And I would take the ferry over like practically every weekend. But then they closed the base. So then I got sent to El Toro, California, which was Orange County. And I was there for a few years. And then I put in another AA form. By this time, I reenlisted. I said, you know what? I'm coming on seven years. Might as well just stay in. So because I had signed an extension to go to California. Of course, then, you know, I get into uh, Iwakuni, Japan. And which, which I loved it. Very, very beautiful. I've got, I got to go to Hiroshima, see the Peace Memorial, uh, the A Dome. I was there. I took a trip. I took 10 days off, went to Tokyo by myself. I was enjoying it. And then, of course, I got promoted. So I was already an E6. And lo and behold, after I get promoted, um, and my new duty station, cause I was only on Japan for one year on a company, I get my orders and it says MCC, which I don't remember what MCC stood for, but it said 015. Those were the codes to our next duty station. So I was like, MCC 015, where's that? And I had been wanting to go to the East Coast, like DC or or Quantico. And so MCC 015 was again, 29 Palms, California. I don't know if you've ever been to 29 Palms, California, but it's near Palm Springs, kind of up the mountain. There's really nothing there. Yucca Valley, Joshua Tree. I've been to to Joshua Tree. yeah. Yeah. So you can imagine what 29 Palms is like if you haven't been through there. There's nothing there. Uh, the gate is five miles away from, from the town. I mean, and if you don't have a car and then, you know, you're pretty much stuck on base and there's no really public transportation of buses to come on base. Um, it's a beautiful place. The desert is beautiful. It's probably my best duty station ever. As far as, you know, based, uh, I never made it to Kaplan or other than school. I never made it to Pendleton other than school, but, um, it was there that I got assigned to the infantry again. And, and it was with our battalion, seven Marines. And that was my unit that I went with when I went into Iraq. So, and that brings me to what was going to be my next question in terms of when did you go? I know you were part of obviously one of the first over as part of operation Iraqi freedom. When, when, when did you go over? Well, you know, it's interesting real quick to go back, Sean, you know, it's interesting. So I come home from Japan in June of 2000, after a year being in Iwakuni, Japan, I got promoted and then, of course, then I get assigned to the unit. And the first sergeant, the first thing he says is, and this is June of 2000, he's like, well, don't unpack. Because I thought, you know, he knew I was coming from Japan. And he's like, don't unpack. And I said, excuse me. He goes, you leave in six months. And I was like, what do you mean? And he goes, you're going to Japan. And I was like, I just came home from Japan. And uh, I was sent to Okinawa, Japan for a uh, six-month deployment, unit deployment. where we, You know, and so that's where units from Camp Pendleton and Lejeune go and do uh, training with the Koreans you know, on the DMZ and things like that. And so I was like, damn it, I just came home. And so of course I went back to Okinawa for six months and came home and I came home in July of 2001. And then of course, August happened. And then September of 2001 is when the world had changed when we got attacked on 9-11. And so the following year, um, most of the East Coast like Camp Lejeune and 2nd Marine Division and all that was getting sent to Afghanistan for the start of Operation Enduring Freedom, mm-hmm. right after weeks after the attacks. And so um, the West Coast was pretty much on standby, meaning the 1st Marine Division, 1st Marine Expeditionary Force, 
And, uh, you know, the holidays came and gone in 2001, 2002 spring by June of, by June of 2002, we, we have training at Victorville at the old George air force base. So we have thousands of troops. We spend 90 days in George air force base for urban training, going through houses. We use the base housing and we use the buildings. And a lot of people were like, why are we doing this? What's going on? We normally didn't do training like that. And if there was something specific going on as a staff and CEO and going to staff meetings, you had already, we had already started hearing the rumors that something was going on in the Middle East. And here it is, June, July of 2002. It hadn't even been a year of 9-11. Mm-hmm. By, by August, even October, the rumors were, were uh even more concrete that we were going to the Middle East and people were like, why, what's going on in the Middle East? And then you started hearing the words of Iraq. And by by Christmas, I was working in, in acquisition supply and everything. I was responsible for quite a bit of the requisitioning of of like the, the desert gear. And by that time, I was already told we're going to the Middle East at the, at the beginning of the new year. And by the way, start packing because you're going first. And I was like, you know, like the week later, I was gone. I left to the Middle East uh, on January 15th of 2003. Wow. Yep, I was one of the very first. I, w- I, was, I would say I was probably in the first wave of 50, 50 troops out of hundreds of thousands that would pour in the next couple of weeks. I was, mm-hmm. I was probably in the first 50, the first wave to, uh, to arrive into Kuwait. Um, and, and of course, not Kuwait City. But the country of Kuwait, because we landed at Kuwait City International. But then, of course, we uh, were taken off on buses to like the middle of the desert. When we got off these buses, it was it was dark time. Um, you couldn't even see lights anywhere. It was just complete dark. The only the the moon, thank goodness, in the desert, the moon provides you illumination. But um, we uh, we didn't have tents. We didn't. We all we had was our packs, our sea bags. And I remember like two days later, and of course the desert gets cold at night. It'll drop into like the, the high, low fifties, mm-hmm. high forties, or it gets freaking cold. And, um, I remember two days later, it, it freaking stormed on us and we had no cover. Everything was just soaking wet. And when you get things wet and the sand sticks to it, mm-hmm. I remember waking up like six in the morning or five thirty one morning, the day after it rained. And we had only been there three, four days. It's still waiting on things to arrive because things were coming by ship or things were coming by, by, you know, C5s or whatever. But we were there very early to prepare for those things. We were the advanced party. Four days before we got, like, two days, we got the word 48 hours before, but four days before we crossed in, actually, we, I got two Marines. One was 22 and one was 17. So um, the one that was 17 lost his brother in one of the towers. And so he joined because he wanted justice, more like he wanted revenge. But let me tell you, going into, uh, when we moved forward on, on March 20th, we moved forward that night. The kid was scared. You could just see it. I knew something was wrong. So I put him on my vehicle and I had already had a talk with all my Marines before we moved forward. I gathered them all together because they were on separate vehicles and separate positions. And, um, and I said, you know, I was the only one literally who had been deployed to Somalia. Everyone, even from the young 20 something Lieutenant, I was the oldest as well. Nobody had ever seen deployment like that. Mm -hmm. And so I talked to them. Um, and I said, you know, this is war. And, um, I said, most likely I said, I'm just being honest. I said, some of us will get hurt and some of us may not come home. I said, but take care of each other. I said, 
always remember your training. And sure enough, I get hurt like within three hours when we crossed in. That was a like, damn it. He yeah. jinxed us. That and, and, and your promise to mom didn't, uh, didn't, uh, no, <laughs> no, well of course, <laughs> you know, and that's in the book too. I wrote a book and, and I mean, three hours after getting injured, when the ground invasion started for the beginning of operation, I'm Rocky freedom. That has to be a record, I guess. I don't know. Maybe it's one of the very rare things that, you know, people, I mean, we did lose people that evening, that day that night as as the bat i think what happened was or at least my professional opinion was i don't think we really anticipated that there would be that much of an engagement of resistance from the iraqi army i think some people thought because there was a lot of people older marines at like 15 18 20 years um and i had just passed my 12 year mark on march 4th of 2003 12 years so um, I think there was a lot of people that had been to Desert Storm already who figured, hey, they're not going to fight that hard because they hate fighting. Or I think people figured it would be another Desert Storm. It'll be over within 90 days or two months. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, hell, it could be over within you know weeks. Right. And uh, so I think the logistical part of it, people in the rear who were to handle all the, the incoming you know reports or the wounded or even personal effects, I think they weren't expecting it to just happen so quickly. Uh, so, so the government was unprepared as well. I mean, my parents, after getting injured, my parents were getting ready to go to a wedding for my, my cousin, huge Catholic wedding. They had gone over to the community center at the church and help other family members decorate this, the church with streamers and things like that for after the ceremony. And so when they got home, of course, they had the landline, which they still have a landline phone. Don't ask me why. <laughs> they have cell phones, but they still have a landline. There was a caller ID and it said SAPD. And then there was another one that said US.govt, which meant US government. So my dad checks the caller ID because he's very just OCD about always checking the caller ID on the phone messages. And so the first message was um, someone from the US government saying, My name is. Um, uh gunnery sergeant martinez you know can you please call me at this number he didn't really identify i guess marines or whatever then the other was from sapd it was a sergeant something from san Diego police department saying can you please call us back at your earliest convenience this is important so my mom was getting ready to you know they were going to shower get dressed and get ready to go to the wedding and then of course it was going to be a long night with the reception and she starts to make a sandwich well then around that time the phone rings the phone on the wall and um, so she answers it and it is the sergeant, but it's the gunnery sergeant from Camp Pendleton, California. And he he asks for my father and he then he fully identifies himself saying this is gunnery sergeant Martinez calling from the United States Marine Corps Camp Pendleton, California. May I speak to the father of Marine Staff Sergeant Eric Alva? The war had just started. It wasn't even 24 hours, I guess. And, and she's like, she I mean, my mom's not stupid. You know, she's like, this is the mother of Staff Sergeant Eric Alva. And, and all he says is from her accounts, when she finally told me the story was that he says, ma'am, I regret to inform you. And so my dad's in the closet, getting his suit out or getting ready to get dressed for the wedding, take a shower, things like that. And he hears this enormous screaming, just, you know, wailing from the kitchen. So he runs thinking my mom hurt herself or something. He gets to the kitchen. The It wasn't a phone wall, it was a cordless. And, um, the cordless is in the middle of the floor. She's up against the counter on her knees screaming. 
And so he picks up the phone. He's like, hello, hello. And the Marine identifies himself again and saying, sir, 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 this is going to start Martinez. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Your son's been injured. Your son's been gravely injured. He's lost his right leg. We don't know anything else, but he's been injured. And, and we're here to tell you that. And I mean, that was, that's how they found out through a phone call from yeah. the government, the military. So of course he's like, stay by the phone. And this time my dad's yelling at my mom, he's alive, he's alive. So this time my dad's, they're like, stay by the phone, someone will contact you. He's like, who? He goes, someone will contact you and and we will give you more information as it comes to us. So the gunnery sergeant gave the number that they could call back, which they probably harassed him a lot because after five, 10 minutes, no one called and they kept calling him. So then of course they had to call my my sister, and my other sister, my twin sister, who were also getting ready for the wedding and said, you need to come over. There's been an emergency. And they thought one of something to my mom had happened. And my dad was like, you need to just come over, please. And they're like, dad, what's going on? They're like, your brother's been injured, you know, and uh, please come over now. So they didn't go to the wedding. My family was absent from the wedding. And my mom comes from a big side of the family where like 10 siblings. Mm-hmm. And uh, so people were asking, like, where are the Alvas? Where are the Alvas? The news had already started reporting. My picture was already starting to show up. So then the news is pleading for my parents to give an interview, which they finally agreed to do an interview. By this time, though, I get to I go from Kuwait to Longstow. I get into Longstow and my lungs collapse. You know, I don't even know how if it's been one day, two days, three days. I don't know. I just, you know, it's been been very just, you know, black blackouts or, you know, yeah, you're not you're not coherent at that point. No. So I finally get to talk to my parents. I couldn't even talk because I was I was so my left leg was broken. My right arm was broken, as you can see, and still the nerve damage. Uh, and my right leg was gone. So um, when I finally get on the phone and, and the nurse comes in, she's like, you know, uh, Eric, your parents are on the phone. So she hands me the phone. And of course, all I had was my left hand. So my dad's like, we're here. We're trying to get a plane to Germany. But of course, the war was going on and they weren't really letting parents go to Germany because of the threat, security issues, things like that. But it's interesting because after I got injured, by this time, Jessica Lynch had already been kidnapped or taken prisoner of war, her unit and other people. And her parents were flown to Germany after she got rescued, you know, 21 days later. Of course, 21 days later, we had lost quite a bit of people and Mm -hmm. the injuries were already over the hundreds, uh, 21 days into the war. And so my mom gets on the phone and I was crying so hard I could barely even talk. I mean, I had such a knot in my throat. I was so sad. And I actually just said, I'm sorry. And she goes, what are you apologizing for? I said, I broke my promise. I got hurt. So she kind of mm-hmm. laughed. And I said, I'm so sorry. She goes, you're alive, Eric. That's all counts. And, uh, and she goes, we're trying to get to you, but they won't let us go to Germany. And so I was supposed to be sent to Bethesda, Maryland. But since I my wounds, I was still in critical condition. I wasn't sustained that they had to keep me you know, a few extra days. So I stayed in Germany for 10 days then eventually flown over to Bethesda. And when I got to Bethesda, I mean, by this time now, there's a lot more wounded that were being flown over with me. And I was the last one to be taken off the bus or that they have this bus set up to where it stacks people and mm-hmm. like a school bus. But they take the seats out and they put in these things where litters where you stack things. And um, I was the last one to be taken off. And I was like, why is everyone else off already? Not me. And you could hear the cameras. You could hear in the back of the bus, the door, like a yellow or school bus. And uh, they came over. There was like two or three people. People were in uniform, Navy, uh, Army. They were like, okay, we're going to put this over your face uh, because the media knows you're on the bus and they want to talk to you because everybody knew. And I had already been told I told I was the first injured. You're, you're the first. And so the media really wanted to talk to me. 
And so they finally take me off the bus. They cover my face and you can just hear the cameras and you can, I can see the flashes a little and, uh, and people are pushing because my, 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 uh, gurney or my cot or my, whatever you call it, uh, yeah. <laughs> is moving left because people are, it's a crowd. And they finally get me inside and you can hear the ruckus. They finally take the blanket off me. Brian's parents are there. The, the corpsman I got injured with. My parents weren't there. And I was like, where's my parents? And Brian's mom was like, you know, they're not here yet. They're not here yet. And I was a little sad, upset, you know, and, and I remember when I finally got to my room, the doctor needed to do an assessment. And I was like, I want to talk to my parents. He's like, well, I'll do my assessment first. I said, I'm, you're not touching me. And and I was very difficult. I was very difficult. And I was even to like, you're effing not touching me, get the F away from me. And so he told one of the nurses, he's like, get his parents on the phone. So they got my parents off phone and my dad answers. And I'm like, where are you? He goes, we're trying to get over there, but the government is being difficult with the plane tickets and blah, 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 blah. So Southwest airlines even caught wind of that. So they donated to uh airline tickets in my family which they gave to my twin sister and my brother-in-law so they flew over right away one of my aunts bought a ticket flew over right away which she arrived right before i was going into surgery again and my parents finally got the tickets so it was just it was a very very hard time i thought about suicide i did try to kill myself wow in the hospital it was one of the darkest and hardest times of my life and of course i remember when i finally learned how to transfer because of having only one limb to actually you know, function, I learned how to pull myself to the wheelchair and slide off the bed, you know, which was very painful because I was, my nerves were affected big sure. time on all limbs. And, and it always hurt. Uh, even when I coughed or I inhaled, even to this day, if I, you know, I sneeze real bad, you, the nerves are always regenerating. So I always have chronic pain. So we ended up on Oprah. We ended up in people magazine. We were getting attention. We ended up in reader's digest. We got flown into New York city because people magazine did an award called they started it after 9-11, People's Hero, Heroes Among Us Award, which now goes on every year. They have a huge, you know. And so um, so we got an award. Carson Daly presented us the award, things like that. It was my first time actually in New York City, which now I've been to many, many, many times. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I got to take my mom, you know, things like that. But coming home, I was always doing interviews. As I started walking, all the media was there, like with cameras, click, 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 click. Look, he's walking, he's walking. I was a marathon runner. I was a huge, huge, huge marathon runner. I uh, made the pledge or the statement that I would run again, which I never ran another marathon. It was just impossible. I probably could do it, but the fear of my injuries, my left leg was broken so bad that when I do run, it's my left leg that hurts my sound side rather than my amputated side. So running 26 miles, I was not going to do that damage to my body. I do have a running leg, but I'm lazy. I hate working out. So, but I mean, it was, it was interesting because being injured like that and the way things I, I have to give credit to Oprah, People Magazine, who threw me in the limelight. And then, of course, having that media credibility was when, of course, when I decided to tell my story, people already knew who I was, the story of coming out as gay. I mean, mm -hmm. people knew who I was. But even going back to 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 being in the hospital after from Bethesda to Walter Reed, as I said at New York's gala a couple of weeks ago uh, for Movie United, it was Dr. Gambo. Who, who put that thought in my head to say, you know, I heard you were a skier. I heard you're a runner. I heard you're a scuba diver. I heard you're a rock climber. You'll get to do those things again. And I was like, you're so full of it, old man, you know? <laughs> and uh, I mean, I didn't say that, but I was like, no, I won't, sir. He goes, yes, you will. And that's when he showed me the tape of people skiing, you know, sit ski or three track. Uh, um, and sure enough, I mean, literally nine months after my injury, I was skiing in Brackenridge, Colorado. 
came down that mountain probably as many times as I can't count because <laughs> I had, and I, I really ate my words again. I'm kind of known for eating my own words sometimes, but yeah, I mean, and ever since then, since December of 2003, I have been with, you know, you know, disabled sports now move United war fighters. I mean, you name it. I have been with this organization that has given me not just, you know, the fun back in my life, but also the courage, the tenacity to breathe life again, to, to grab a hold of something that, you know, you've almost lost. No one in my immediate family from sisters to parents have ever skied, you know, none of them have ever been scuba divers. None of them have ever run a 5k or a marathon. Oh yeah. My, they do like 5ks for my mother's a breast cancer survivor, but I mean, I've lived life. So at 51 years old, I'm living life again, you know, and I plan to go skiing in December this year. It's been a few years, so I need to get back out there and, you know, smell the snow. And as I always said, when I got to the top of the mountain, if this is heaven, it is beautiful. Or maybe this is as close as I'll get to heaven for right now. So. And you mentioned um, early on about your, about Radical Courage, which your book. What 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 possessed you to write a book? I never wanted to write a book. Oh, my God. Um, I don't have regrets, uh, but um, I never wanted to write a book because I just I, I don't like people knowing my story. I guess if that sounds kind of ironic because I speak, I'm on a public speakers uh, bureau, which I've been speaking for 15 years. I guess so when I finally decided to tell the story, it was in the hopes of inspiring and empowering people. I also wanted to put in the story of my childhood which I left out because again, my mom being very private and apprehensive that my childhood was not a very good childhood. And it wasn't, you know, something that I harbor or have any ill will towards my parents, but my dad didn't come home the same. I mean, he came home in 1968, suffered from, you know, PTSD, which we didn't coin it. PTSD did a year in Vietnam, survived the Tet Offense only to come home two weeks later than get sent 1968 to the democratic national convention in Chicago which of course they weren't given guns or bullets. They were pretty much not given anything just to control the protesters and the rioters. So they got, you know, belted with rocks, bottles, anything people could find to throw at them. And here are people who served their country unwillingly, you know, who were, were told you go to war or you go to prison. And so the disrespect that we as a nation did to the Vietnam veterans still sticks with me today because of my father. But I mean, just the, such disgrace how we did that. I get it. You have a right to protest. We did it during Iraq and Afghanistan. But what we did in the 60s and 70s to, to the Vietnam veterans, what we've continued to do today is just, you know, it's it's disgraceful. It, and it's just unbearable for me to stop and then start thinking of everything, especially my father. But, but in the book, I wanted to put about my father's story, which I did a little, but I also wanted to put that, that there was domestic violence, you know, in, in the household where he would hit my mom. Um, and, and there was a time where he pulled a gun on us, all of us. And I think I was like seven or something. I still remember those times. It was not pretty, but again, it was not, it was not, you know, something that I don't think was premeditated that he had planned to do. It was, it was the war it took over and war is not a, a, a pretty thing. I mean, I still suffer from PTSD. And so, um, he was not the same man. And so I wanted to use that in the book and kind of just show people the courage I had, the radical courage of even having learning from where I came from, my my mother striving to leave him, get it, get out when we needed to, to be safe. My dad's courage, finding his way back to being sober. You know, my parents 
reconciling. The courage that I had comes from them. And so my mom and I had a very long argument debate. So most of that was taken out of the book. I still had a good story because of what I decided to do by joining the military, serving my country, and then having the courage to speak up for other individuals, especially the the LGBTQ population. You know, I get a lot of emails. I get a lot of, you know, sometimes I even still get an email like out of the full blue moon calling me derogatory names or something, someone, because I am, I, I constantly am speaking out. I live in Texas, which I have to speak out, but I, I've actually, you know, done things to just make sure that I'm speaking not on gay rights, but veterans rights, especially, but people with disabilities, programs, grants, funding, even for homeless. You know, my master's is in social work. I went back to college after I got out of the military. Finally went back to college and got my bachelor's and master's. I'm an adjunct professor now. I teach policy and practice. And I have three speeches scheduled in the next couple of months to different organizations. I just did one in DC in the beginning of June to the Danaher Corporation. I mean, I, I'm constantly speaking to to companies about diversity, equity, and inclusion. I don't have all the right answers and I don't know it all. I'm I'm 51, but I'm still young at heart where I'm still learning even about my own identities. I didn't come out till I was, you know, 36. But I listen to people. We all have biases. We all have prejudice. If there's someone who's out there says, I don't have biases or prejudice, then you need to really look in the mirror and and do a, right. a, an audit of yourself because we all have prejudice and biases. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it's just, it's interesting. I mean, because, I mean, this, you know, um, since March after the Uvalde shooting and then the migrant tragedy here in San Antonio. And then uh, as a social worker, I, I don't have to say it, but I think you would know how I stand on Roe versus Wade. And uh, but it's just it, it it just seems like we're going backwards, even for people with disabilities, you know, as far as as far as the the opportunities or the the even employment or activities, getting the title of the book Radical Courage. I think it started off where my husband came up with a title to the effect of, you know, he defined courage and I forget what it was. And then we kept cutting it down. And, and then finally my ghostwriter used the word radical. She goes, why don't we use courage? And why don't we just call it radical courage because of someone who is so spoken out like you and radical. <laughs> um, I think it would fit you, especially for being a five foot one gay Marine. And I was <laughs> like, yep, that's pretty much. I mean, do I ever have any regrets or remorse speaking out? Not one. Do I ever have any regrets or remorse getting injured? Not one. Again, I don't do what ifs because if I could change my life, I wouldn't. If someone, if I had a genie bottle or something, found one and rubbed it and said, if you could have one wish, what would it be? I don't think I would wish on anything because I have a lot and I definitely would not wish for my leg back. I mean, I just, I would not change where my life is today. 